I think nonprofits have to ask themselves, when we talk about the voice of the customer, who is the customer? Is it the donor or is it the service recipient? When we were listening to the voice of the customer being the donors, we would be afraid to talk about Black liberation. Welcome back to The Ethical Rainmaker, a podcast that explores the world of inequity and nonprofits and philanthropy, including where we can step into our power or where we should get out of the way. I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Murray. It's part of my desire and effort to bring zero-cost information, case studies, and of course, inspiration, which we have plenty of today, to those of us in the third sector who are exploring where we've been complicit in upholding problematic practices and those of us who want to do better on this journey. You can find us on socials if you like what you're listening to. And if you want to support this work, find us on Patreon. Today's guest is a James Beard award-winning chef and TV celeb. So why is he on The Ethical Rainmaker? Well, Tommy Beavis has a background in nonprofit work, and in the wake of the uprisings following the lynching of George Floyd, Tommy worked with Community to launch a direct aid effort that grew into an important community-centric nonprofit organization, Pimento Relief Services, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Tommy can be seen on the Food Network, the Travel Channel, the Magnolia Network. He's been on shows like iHeart Food, Delicious Destinations, Family Dinner, Food Court Wars, and he won that rare and coveted James Beard Award through his restaurant, Pimento Jamaican Kitchen and Rum Bar. Tommy has won two volunteer service awards from two separate presidents of the United States from both sides of the aisle. Tommy is also one of the most effusive and inspiring people I've met. We happened to meet at yet another awards ceremony in fall 2021, where Tommy was being recognized for his work during the pandemic and the creation of Pimento Relief Services, which we'll learn more about today. So without further ado, Tommy, welcome to The Ethical Rainmaker. Yeah, man, wagwan. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. I was thrilled that I got a chance to meet you. We met at the Association of Fundraising Professionals National Philanthropy Day event where they were giving awards to folks in the community who had done incredible work. And you were one of the recipients who just blew us away with your story of how you really truly centered community during the pandemic and used all of your brilliance, your wisdom, and thought to center community and build services people needed. So I thought we might start there. Give me the background about Pimento Relief Services. So Pimento Relief Services was basically an answer after George Floyd was lynched right here in our cities, only less than two miles from where we're headquartered at Pimento Jamaican Kitchen. After my father watched the video and everybody was talking about the video, I'm like, no, I'm going to avoid it. But my father in New York sent it to me. I'm like, oh, my goodness this must be big if New Yorkers are talking about George Floyd. And so I, I went to my garage, locked the door, allowed myself to watch the video and just allowed myself to bawl, just bawl. Like watching the, the lack of humanity shown. Every time I think of it, one has to take a deep breath, right? Yeah. So just get back to that moment. And so the next morning, which happened to have been my birthday in 2020, I always avoid working on my birthday, but I'm like, nah. Nah, something has to be done. We have to do something. So I'm ready to go to work and saw my employees. I'm like, listen, all right, since we know everybody, since we're friends with everybody, because Pimento Jamaican Kitchen has traditionally been that safe space for everyone. We're like, we have the Rolodex of everybody. 
What if we brought our friends together and have a summit so we can talk about what happened and how we can solve this? My employees were like, no, hold on, man, no. We can't have a conversation right now. We're hurting. We're in pain. Mm. We're hungry. A few supermarkets have closed because of the pandemic or because of the uprisings. A lot of restaurants had closed because of the pandemic and because of the uprising. And here in the food headquarters of the world, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota, the food headquarters of the world, we found ourselves in a food desert where one would have to literally leave the city proper to go into the suburbs to find food. Wow. And so our employees were like, nah, we're hungry. And so we're like, all right, well, let's do what we've done in the past. Let's have a little food drive to collect some donations and see what happens. And that was on Thursday. And 24 hours later, we thought we'd get a few cases of water, but the entire space was filling up so quickly that by Sunday, we had to close the restaurant because we had no space to store food. Wow. Our neighbors showed up with their generosity and you name it, the neighbors were bringing it to service other neighbors. And the beauty about it is when people would show up, we didn't just assume, oh, people need more canned beans. We'd literally ask them, what is it that you need? And so we were keeping a tally or a list of what the needs were and basically reporting it out via social media in real time to the community to say, hey, now we need baby food. Oh, we have enough baby food. Now we need baby diapers. And that's how we would do it. And people were showing up with whatever we requested, including fire extinguishers. Wow. Air conditioning units, smoke detectors, first aid kits, and then even medication for, for, for folks with diabetes. Wow. People were showing up with insulin as the demand was provided. Preventive relief services was us asking the community what they needed. And we were providing them those resources. After that first week of doing the, the food drive, we held a healing event in the streets of the Twin Cities where people could come out, do some yoga, do art. And that was the week where people started painting the plyboards that were boarding up our city, turned them into art, which after that we preserved several of those pieces to use in our own museum for the uprising. And then the third weekend, what we did was we assembled the top leaders of the Twin Cities, ranging from the mayor to the head of the city council to the activists, to business leaders, to community leaders. And we brought together 150 of the top leaders in the backyard of our little Jamaican restaurant. Wow. To where we can talk about, yo, what happened? And we broke folks up into different segments. So we had like literally a, a spiritual table where the religious leaders could sit there and talk about how the churches and places of worship are going to show up in this time. To where we had the business leaders sitting at the business table talking about how the business community can show up. And we agreed that we needed to create Pimenta Relief Services with the purpose of providing the resources for those who are on the front lines of liberation. Mm. And we talk about liberation, we're talking about economic liberation. So how do we create more Black business leaders? How do we get, for example, Black people who are in construction to move from the construction to the developer level? Mm -hmm. Right? Right. To talk about social liberation, Food justice falls under that. Social justice falls under that. Even academic justice falls under that. How do we get more women in academia? How do we get our academic history accurate? Mm -hmm. That's right. And then we'll talk about political liberation, which is the third leg of what we focus on. 
It's how do we not only get people to show up to the polls, but how do we get people to show up to run for office, provide them the resources as they are running for office. So if one needs a campaign manager or a fundraiser or a marketer, we provide that network for them to reach into to be able to run their campaign. And more importantly, we've also created a political action committee to fundraise for those candidates. And it's not just Black candidates, it's for all candidates who are for humanity, as we call it. That's beautiful. And so through political liberation, social liberation, and economic liberation, those we see as our theories of change. And so we created preventive relief services as a result of the community saying that they wanted it. So we started by listening to those who we are here to serve. That's an incredible story. And, you know, why weren't there already services in place or why were traditional food banks and other relief services not able to cope with the demand? Did none of the services exist? I mean, what was happening that you created it? Excellent question. Here's the answer to that. They've always been here. We have an amazing nonprofit sector in the Twin Cities, Mm. among the best in the country and thus among the best in the world. And yet, Across the board, what we saw was everybody becoming afraid. Ah. Right? So rather than the nonprofits and those who are here with the resources running to, to, to put out the fire, everybody was hunkering down, which quite honestly wasn't a bad proposition. There was a pandemic going on after all. And so when people were there hungry, the local food shelves weren't ready that week to run out because the entire city was on fire. Mm. And Quite honestly, food shelves and nonprofits aren't as prepared to deal with these levels of uprisings as much as they're prepared to deal with a hurricane or a tornado. So, oh, if if a tornado hit Minneapolis, 12 hours would have had the triage area set up over there, would have been directing that there, this there, tractors will be coming in. And yet when it was a a human man-made, person-made disaster, we didn't know what to do, right? And to be honest, the issue itself is simply the fact that we haven't been listening to our communities. Let's be honest, because if we were listening to our communities, we'd have understood that we live in a food desert before the food desert showed its face. If we were listening to our community, we'd have avoided the situation altogether. Let's be honest. Like in all the ways, in all the ways. All the ways. And yet what we were able to do is because we've been that safe space for everyone, People felt comfortable telling us what they needed directly. We had that relationship. We tried to use Marcus Garvey as our true north. We're following what Marcus Garvey says. Where there's an opportunity, but there's nobody solving it, we need to solve it for ourselves. Mm. And so we're creating preventive relief services to sort of provide that independence, that freedom, that emancipation, that quite honestly, we've all been tiptoeing around. But we feel as though we're doing that more holistic approach. We're, we're unashamed in being bold. A lot of organizations are like, well, I'm just going to focus on economics or, well, I'm just going to focus on the food. Even when we have our master's degrees, we still feel unsafe in our communities. Why is that? Even when we're in our six-figure, seven-figure jobs, we're still feeling afraid and we're still targeted and we're still under threat. Why is that? And so we are doing this more holistic approach and we're still we're peeling back the layers to try to get to the core of a lot of these issues. And so we felt that it was natural and necessary for us to go back to our roots. And we tapped into our West African ancestry because again, it's about independence, freedom, and emancipation. 
You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Muri. Did you know The Ethical Rainmaker is now accepting sponsors and supporters? You can join our community of individual supporters on Patreon. And if you want to find out how to get your name and work out to our ever-expanding community, drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. We would love to have you as a sponsor. Now, back to our conversation with Tommy Beavis of Pimento Relief Services and Pimento Jamaican Kitchen and Rum Bar. Unfortunately, and I'm glad that the audience here can get this, from a nonprofit sector, we usually see the service recipients as separate and apart from the nonprofit and the nonprofit's leadership, the nonprofit's board, the nonprofit's funders, us helping them. And the us helping them don't usually ask them what they need and what they want and how they got there and how they can get away from there. What we do is, from a leadership standpoint, we earmark a couple hundred thousand dollars to hire a consultant to tell us what we already knew and then create all sorts of systems about us without talking to us. So the funders then hear from the six-figure CEO that they got a report that they spent six figures on and still end up missing the mark and then get another consultant to research why we missed the mark. That's right. And then put out a report as to why the mark was missed. And it's often because of the people, the community. Right. 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 And I'm only saying this because that's my background as well. Nonprofit, <laughs> government, and corporate philanthropy. Mm. As well as an award-winning chef, which is oh, why it's amazing. Side, right? <laughs> I forgot about the cooking parts. Yes. That is also my analysis. Even as a consultant in the nonprofit sector, I have seen a lot of that. That's what we do. Right. And we have to recognize too, it's, I think the nonprofits have to ask themselves, when we talk about the voice of the customer, who is the customer? Is it the donor or is it the service recipient? Because when we were listening to the voice of the customer being the donors, we would be afraid to talk about Black liberation. We'd be afraid to talk about serious issues within our community, whether Black, BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, we were afraid to challenge these serious issues head on because we didn't want to make our funders uncomfortable with the real solutions. That's so true. I'm hearing you say when we've been centering donors, we are centering their comfort. Absolutely. And then the unfortunate part is we don't often have those who are helping at the table to help us know how to help. What do you mean? So imagine a women's shelter Imagine what it would have been like if a woman who had been unhoused or have been in an abusive relationship and having to find her own space, if she were in giving input in how to build a women's shelter versus, again, a six-figure report saying, this is how we should solve that problem. How many women's shelters have women who have been unhoused serving on their boards? <laughs> so a lot of these things are low-hanging fruits. And until we really try centering the true customers who are the people we're here to serve and not the funders will continue to create more of a problem than solving the problems. I sit on the board of Sexual Violence Law Center here in Seattle, Washington, and the folks who we work with are folks who are in mid-crisis. And the staff and the board of this organization are super in tune to the fact that we need to be serving the community in whatever holistic way they want and need to be served. 
Most of the folks involved are survivors ourselves, but we're not in the same situations as our clients just because we share an identity, right? We're not in the middle of a crisis in mid-trauma. We're not in the middle of multiple complex legal battles. We are safe. We are not having immigration issues. And so even though we share one or two identities, we must be in active relationship with our community to know what folks really need and want. And I, just as a side, want to name that if we're not centering donors like we often do and what donors think is best, service organizations will often center what the board thinks is best. And the board are not always closest or part of the community being served. So I just wanted to name that. Right. Here in the Twin Cities, we're having similar conversations like the children's theater. How often are we including children in planning the theater? Right? Right. Like, come on. <laughs> right. And and how and how much does our ageism play right. into the decisions that we're making for an organization like that, for example? Right. I know we were all children once, and yet there's some children who are children now. So how do we engage <laughs> right. them in planning right. the, their engagement and entertainment? Right. Oh, that's a great example. We've all been children, and there are some people who are children currently. <laughs> You know, one of the things that I'm hearing from you is that you really listen to your community. You talked about listening to staff, hearing that hunger, hearing, no, we can't have these higher level conversations. We need food. We need to meet all the survival needs first. Right. How did you really distill what the community needed or or what would you suggest for when organizations are trying to understand? <laughs> trust. I'd say start with trust. So trust the people you're serving to know what they need and what they want. So as it relates to us helping in the middle of the uprising, I can safely say that I simply got out of the way and allowed them, using the term them again, allowed them to build the community food that they needed in the space that I happen to have been a steward of, right? So we gave them the restaurant and they literally set up their system they set up their donation drives. They set up their communication. They literally came up with a name, Pimento Relief Services. Oh. They took it and ran with it. And so I can't take credit as the person who was volunteering 24-7, but I can say that I was the one who got out of the way and allowed the community to build what the community needed. And so for nonprofits, I would say it's similarly, it is such a new day. We should be excited by the opportunity to bring into the conversation every single person we're trying to serve. And also imagine seeing it as an upward mobile opportunity to where they're serving as volunteers, then they're hired, then they're on the board, then they're funders of our organizations versus always seeing them as extra, as outside of. And if nothing else, the theme is to just love and trust our community. And even in the middle of the uprising, I'll give you an example as to how we earned the community's trust too. We were the only business not boarded up on wow. our block and within our community. Wow. Right? I have pictures or, and video driving around the city and everywhere, including the police station, completely Oof. boarded up. Wow. <laughs> City yeah. Hall, boarded up. All the places that are supposed to serve people. Right. But you were open. Right. And for two reasons. One, we didn't want to send the wrong message that we were afraid of our community. And then separately, we're like, this is yours. 
If you decide to burn it with everything else, it's yours. It is yours to burn. For the record, naturally, as a business person, I'm like, well, thank goodness I have insurance. And yet, (laughs) it is yours to burn. And instead of burning it, the community came out and protected our restaurant. So when there was threats of folks coming to, to do harm to the physical property, we put out an appeal on social media. And that night, 250 volunteers showed up to protect our space. People <laughs> were standing guard around my restaurant throughout the night, trying to protect us mm. in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of smelling your city burn, literally. Amazing. You know, that's one of the things I think about when we see violence in the streets. You're saying, look, if you burn it down, do as you will. But this is here for you. Whereas right. all the other businesses around you, including the government entities, had all boarded up. And what message does that send? Like, who are they there to serve? Right. And you made that statement so clearly. Right. And again, it's that trust factor. And uh, we, because Pimento itself, Pimento Jamaican Kitchen was started in my backyard where we'd fire up the grill and neighbors would come over smelling the food and I couldn't get rid of them. Amazing. And so that's how we started it. Yeah, I, I believe it. <laughs> the community built it because we used my backyard and a hundred dollar tent from Target going around town and the community helped us build it from a grassroots level. Wow. And so they felt ownership of it. And so... All I see myself as is the steward of their business and the person who ensures that the food is to my grandmother's standards. I love it. Right? Yeah, make grandma proud. Right. But beyond that, it's theirs. Because if Mm. they're not showing up to eat the food, my family and I can't eat all that jerk chicken. Right. What if all our businesses were run this way, by the way? Right. And (laughs) so we're using jerk chicken, that very same jerk chicken that they've come to learn and love as an instrument of liberation. Mm-hmm. as their tool to liberate the cities and to create a model city here in the Twin Cities. You know, at the award ceremony where I met you, one of the attendees had come up to me ahead of time and said, check this man out. He's incredible. Also, he's been changing the way that I think about police violence. He's been using the word lynching. One of the interesting things is I tend to use the term lynch with what happens to George Floyd, not simply for a shock value, but more so from a historical perspective. If we were historians today or historians reflecting on what has happened to African-Americans in this country, I can't see how what happened to George Floyd is different than what happened to Emmett Till or anyone before them 100 years ago. It is simply a state-sanctioned killing. That's right. Right. And us watching it. A hundred years ago, one would leave church, go down to the town square, grab some ice cream and watch a black man being hung. Right. We saw the George Floyd video, two wonderful folks walking right by eating ice cream as George Floyd was being choked to death. That's right. And so I'm not doing this for shock value or I'm not in this space because I'm bored and need something else to do. It's because it's about time we try to solve a lot of these serious problems. So therefore, my son can feel free to walk in any neighborhood without the fear of being attacked by agents of the state or even the neighbors on that block. When my son can walk on your block without fear is when we know we're truly there. And I'm also hearing you say, define it. This is lynching. Right. Yeah. Right. And also lynching because it's state-sanctioned. Yeah. It's state-created and it's a part of our system. 
And if we're not solving it today, then we will be talking about lynchings a hundred years from now. There are a lot of things that folks have been afraid about in the service sector and the nonprofit sector. And one of them is naming this as lynching. Right. Because we don't want to offend our funders. Right. Exactly. Did did our board approve us using that term? Um, But again, it's who is the customer and what is the voice of the customer saying? Yeah. And it's saying, name it. Name it. Name (laughs) Name it. it. We're never going back. And I think we're all we're all recognizing that we're going to be better for it. Yeah. We're going to be better for it. And I'm excited to see what the historians are going to write about this time. Yeah. Because together we've learned. We've learned so much, not just over the past years, but we've learned from what Marcus Garvey was talking about 100 years ago, which then Martin Luther King and and Malcolm X were then arguing over. right? Right. But never again shall we be divided on this mission. Right. The only way we can get there is together. Word. (laughs) Thank you. Pimento Relief Services arose organically in direct response to community need in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and all the uprisings that we've talked about. What came next in terms of formalizing the organization and the mission? And then what have you learned in creating this organization? We started with the community telling us what they needed. So we created the nonprofit. I I made sure that we hired someone from the community to serve as its director. We then um, created summits and town halls for the main purpose of trying to convene folks to help us build on it. We have people within our community who are building that political action committee. When we talk Mm. about trying to build toolkit for candidates to run for office, we have people in our community who've ran for office building that toolkit for those who are coming behind them. We also started tapping into lawyers right away. We got our IRS registration very quickly and we created our PAC very quickly. But I think one piece that I haven't really mentioned is also I have a background in nonprofit government and, you know, so my background is corporate philanthropy. And so I was able to tap into a lot of our friends in that, in those sectors. And so I use my Rolodex as an instrument of liberation in that regard. That's right. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Because we can't just be friends on Facebook and then I need help. I'm not calling you. Right. So everybody saw this as theirs to build. Beautiful. And we've been building it together. It hasn't been easy, naturally, building any business is hard. But one of the things that we did first was to create a B corporation before we did a nonprofit. Because we don't believe that helping our community should always be a losing profit proposition. Mm-hmm. Instead of going out looking for crumbs, why not build our own oven so we can bake our own bread so we can feed mm. our own community? And so mm. we built a B Corporation so where we can um, do a lot of the work that we're doing as fee-for-service to generate our own revenue to solve a lot of our own problems. And we recognize that as it relates to check writing, a lot of folks need a 501c3 to, to make a check out to. So we also created a 501c3 just for the sole purpose of receiving the funds. You know, but we, but we want to ensure that when we're even doing stuff in the community, bringing our artists, we're paying the artists for their work. When we come out and invite the healers to come out to the community, we're paying the healers for their work, right? Because we don't believe that anybody should be working for free anymore. Come on now. I love it. Right? Yeah. And just because you're taking care of your community, just because you l- love your community doesn't mean that you have to give away your time and talent for free. 
we have such a bad habit of that in the nonprofit sector, especially, and especially around artists and especially around healers, yep. but also in other arenas too. And I'm sure in food as well, right? Absolutely. We, we expect not to pay people for their talent and their love. Yeah. Right. That's taking advantage of them and it makes it unsustainable for us to be solving our problems. I would love to hear a little bit more about how we participate in building tools of liberation. The interesting part about building tools of liberation is we usually oftentimes already have it at our disposal. Mm. So you using this podcast, the podcast itself is the instrument of liberation. Yeah. Right? That was That's my intent. My intention is certainly to try to provide any information for people who want to be doing things differently, who need inspiration or case studies. Yes, this is totally part of my intention. Right. And those ethical rainmakers, <laughs> they're already seeing themselves as instruments of liberation. And we just need to see ourselves as a tool. And we just all march forward as United Buffalo soldiers charging towards the waterhole, right? Word, yes. Once we start coordinating and uniting and heading towards creating a better planet, a better humanity, we'll all eventually get there, but only together. That's right. And I think right now is a great time because everybody's stepping up for the most part. And everyone is is now championing social justice for the most part. And so it's how do we not lose this moment? How do we not squander this opportunity? Mm -hmm. And how do we ensure that that which we're trying to solve now is finally solved, even though our parents, our grandparents, our grandparents, grandparents hadn't solved it? Right. A lot of them made this problem. Right. So it's up to us to help undo this problem. Similarly, in order for us to be even better ancestors than them, we have to make sure that now is the time. Because if not now, when? If not us, who? Right? If not here, where? Right. And so with everything that we have, even if we're a marketer and a marketing role in our nonprofit, ensure that we're not causing a harm in our marketing for that nonprofit. If we're a funder or a, a philanthropist, ensure that, well, we're not doing harm with our giving, but we're being instruments of liberation with our giving. And one example I give of that is when we think of theaters, I like to use theaters because that's a, that's an easier, softer one to target. So when a, when a person decides that they're going to fund one theater a million dollars and fund another theater $10,000 and then ask, why is the one that I'm funding $10,000 not operating at the level of the million dollar one? Mm-hmm. We're the ones creating that problem. And so with our giving, we are creating a lot of these problems. With our giving, we're telling nonprofits that maybe the reason why there's an academic achievement gap is because of those parents. Really? Have we not really been aware of American academic history? Mm-hmm. I mean, if my parents were born in America, they couldn't have gone to school next to the parents of my neighbor. And yet th- now they're going to say my children, it's only because I'm not as involved in my kid's life where there's academic achievement gap, we have to be a bit more honest with our, with with ourselves. That's right. In solving these problems. And it starts with that honesty in order to earn that trust, in order for us to have the conversations and to yeah. develop the systems of change, the theories of change to get to that promised land together. Yeah. Oh, I hear it. I literally, I went to the Harlem Nutcracker last mm, weekend. Wow. 
Yeah, it was amazing. Donald Byrd's Harlem Nutcracker has been touring extensively since 96. It centers the Black family. It focuses on the significance of the grandmother in African-American culture. It highlights Harlem as a center of the African diaspora. So the Spectrum Dance Theater has been workshopping it, showing part of the piece each year for a couple of years to see if the original production still holds up or if they need to modernize. Now that they've workshopped it over the last three years, their goal is to raise $2 million to put together a beautiful production of a historically and artistically significant cultural piece that has been, again, touring the nation for years and is an incredible story for our communities. And they're sweating it to raise this $2 million for next year. Whereas our ballet companies across the nation that usually put on the white ballet version of the Nutcracker, also beautiful, but, you know, traditional, have had incredible success. And we wonder why this one group has to workshop this piece in three pieces and then is going to hope to be able to put on a full production while we have a traditional Nutcracker in ballet form that is successful every year. And we wonder why we act like it's the fault of the the dance company. Yeah, but it's racism. <laughs> right, and then that traditional ballet company will then go see what that Harlem one is doing. It's like, oh, we should take that little piece. And now all of a yeah. sudden, you see some breakdancing in the traditional Harlem That's one. That's right. right, you know it. And then yeah. they get an additional $10 million because they now incorporated <laughs> a breakdance section in the in right. the, in the traditional um, Nutcracker. And and that's just right. the, the, the reality of America. And we just need to be aware of it as we try to, to, to resolve it. Again, that's another example as to where the funders can oftentimes create that achievement gap period. Yeah. Right, where we're funding what we want to fund, I guess, and it creates the problems, and then we have to try to fix the other problems that we create. And so it's just a, a vicious cycle. So one of the things that we recognized after the uprisings is that there was a short-term immediate need. But thankfully, we recognize that this wasn't a one-day solution. We couldn't just simply feed people and walk away, ha-ha, our work here is done. We have to talk about the long-term recovery right. and the long-term rebuilding. And so there's the immediate relief and now we're in the longer-term recovery and the longer-term rebuilding. And as part of the recovery effort, it's us coming together and finding out, okay, um, what happened? Where are we? As part of the rebuilding effort is, all right, what do we need to build and how do we build back better? How do we build that model city? What does that look like? And one example that we've stolen from Latin America is a program called Cities Can Be, where it's basically getting together disparate sectors of the community. So the chambers of commerce, the academic institutions, the nonprofit sector, the corporate sector, and having us all sit around a table and use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as our North Star. So if we're saying in Nairobi, Kenya, in Kingston, Jamaica, we're going to use the UN SDGs to evaluate how well these cities are doing, imagine what it would be like if we were to apply those same criteria to the U.S. cities. Right. Right. So then we'll be asking questions about income inequality, gender inequality, environmental inequality, and those different areas that we're using as markers to say how cities are developing around the world. And we will be surprised to recognize that we're missing the mark here in the U.S. a lot. And so there's a lot of work that needs to get done. 
And so even if we're in a privileged city, I mean, Minneapolis is a pretty wealthy city. Mm-hmm, Seattle too. And yet we live in a food desert. And so how do we evaluate the issues of food insecurity the same way and using the same criteria that we would use for the Horn of Africa? Right. And with that, then we can truly talk about rebuilding and rebuilding for us all. And with that, we have to then also be honest and truthful about what we had before, right? We had levees that were kind of shaky and that could have broken any minute. So how do we ensure that this time when we're rebuilding our levees, we're doing them in the right way and for all people, not just for some people. And so again, to answer the question, long-term versus short-term, what happens when? We always have to treat it like a disaster, a natural disaster. Go in, put out the fires, get the people the blanket, get them some water, get them the, the blood from the blood donations that we did two years ago or whatever. And then we're coming together to evaluate what happened and then come up with that strategy for moving forward with rebuilding better. And then the other part of that is we have to recognize that if we don't fix the problem, we will be right back here very soon. That's right. We can unfortunately, very unfortunately say George Floyd was not the last. I remember as a kid living in Jamaica and seeing Amadou Diallo being killed 40 plus shots in New York City. As a kid in Jamaica, I'm like, wait, what? That can't happen. Jamaica is pretty violent. And yet me worried about getting 40 shots reaching for my wallet wasn't something that I'd ever be concerned about in Kingston City. And so um, when I'm talking about this to like the ethical rainmakers, it is important that we understand the role that we have to play in this world as instruments of liberation. It doesn't get more direct than that. Y'all are the lowest hanging fruits when it comes to liberation for us all. It's not liberation for Black people, it's liberation for humanity. As one of our local healers, Dr. Joy Lewis says, it, it's, it's like when grandmama sees that wound and we pour the alcohol in, ouch, it's hurting, it's painful. But yet after that, the healing process starts. So the revolution will be healing. The revolution will be healing. We're speaking with Tommy Beavis of Pimento Relief Services and Pimento Jamaican Kitchen and Rum Bar, who is also a food TV celeb and award-winning chef, today here on The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Miri. Find all of our shows and more at theethicalrainmaker.com. It's so exciting to talk to you and to hear about what you've built because you, I mean, you've continually built things, right? With your entire life energy, it seems <laughs> like you've just been building and building and building and, you know, generating things that your community needs. So there are so many questions I have that are like both technical, like the one I just asked, and personal. So my my favorite question to ask is always, between the time you were born and now, you have had so many experiences that have shaped your life. But I wonder... If you were to point to a few of those experiences or identities or factors or facets of your life that shape the work that you do now, what would they be? Mm, the two that quickly come to mind would be, one, watching my grandmother, Babylou, in the heart of West Kingston. We're talking about Bob Marley's trench down here, right? When the community is in need or when the community is hurting or in pain or somebody dies in the community, seeing her donate a 50-pound bag of rice, or seeing her donate a whole 
goat that they would then harvest and make some good curry goat served over that white rice, some rum to, 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 to entertain themselves. And before you know it, it was a way for the community to heal and to mourn, you mm-hmm. know? So I've watched my grandmother use food as a way to bring people together. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of it, I've seen my mother, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, the biggest thing for her was to go out and feed folks at the homeless shelters or at her local church or, mm. you know, that was always spoke to me that on the day when our family's supposed to be indoors, away from the cold, open up gifts and, and cutting a ham, there we are at a spot giving away food to where, where we show up. Oftentimes we're like, oh, are you here to get food? And I'm like, oh, how rude. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. You know what I'm saying? But we, we, we're there showing up to go help. And, you know, so I think growing up in, in Jamaica, we recognize that if there's even one loaf of bread, that's enough to feed our community. Mm-hmm. And so going off to college, I was passionate about politics and economics. And yet mm-hmm. it was more so, well, how am I going to use that for my community? And that's how I ended up in, like, say, Washington, D.C., where I was doing government and nonprofit work and, you know, helping to build corporate responsibility programs right after 9-11. Oh, wow. To where we got 1,500 businesses to sign on to the president's call to action, Mm. right? And so those types of things um, have just been building on themselves to where I then got recruited out of Washington, D.C. to come to Minnesota to lead global community relations for a food company. Wild. Right? And then yeah. cooking food after leaving the food company brought together my neighbors to then start my restaurant. Wow. And then using that same restaurant to feed the community when the community needed to be fed. And so the roots of it goes back to that greater responsibility to serve one's community, mm-hmm. right? Because our purpose is much greater than we are. Mm-hmm. And when we think of our community itself, I feel as though each and every one of us has a greater responsibility. So, for example, as a Black man, I have a greater responsibility to my community. As a Jamaican, I have a greater responsibility specifically to my Jamaican community. I'm imagining as a white man, he should have a greater responsibility. In the LGBTQIA plus community, we each have a greater responsibility. And so it's answering that call to service, you know, stepping up and doing one's duty for that greater responsibility is how I've ended up here. And if nothing else, that's what I hope that people get from this conversation today. And if nothing else, I hope that's something I can pass on to my children, that sense of greater responsibility because our purpose is so much greater than we are. Oh, goosebumps. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So now what's next for Pimento? We're, We're now farther out from the lynching of George Floyd. How has the mission shifted and what's ahead? Now that's the million dollar question, right? So where do we go from here? I think what we have to continue doing is building these convenings to where people can come together to talk about where we need to go as a community. We have already launched our political action committee. We've already launched our nonprofit. We've already launched our B Corporation. We have our theories of change. But now it's ensuring that those who have the resources, those who've made commitments right after the uprisings, ensuring that they will continue down the path to full liberation. We can't stop now. We won't stop now. And if we do stop now, I'm telling you that we'll be right back here in no time at all having the very same conversations. 
So naturally, fundraising is a huge part of what we have to do because we've exhausted a lot of our funds. So feel free to donate at PimentaReliefServices.org. But, yes. but for real, we really do recognize that in order to get this work done, we need all hands on deck. And our job is to engage every single person we can find because everyone can be an instrument of liberation. Oh, thank you so much for that update on Pimento Relief Services. You know, it is the first time that we have a chef, let alone an award-winning chef, on The Ethical Rainmakers. So one question I've got to ask you is, what are your favorite dishes to cook? <laughs> mm, man, I just love cooking, period. Like, I go in the kitchen, I turn on some music, and it's just a party. It is just like art and it's science and I'm just excited to like I go to somebody else's house and they're cooking and I'm preparing for dinner I'm like oh no I don't want to be in the living room with the guests I want to be in the kitchen let me chop up something and it's very calming for me but what I love to cook I'd probably have to say is at home it's stew peas right Jamaican stew peas and what it is is you take kidney beans you slow simmer with some coconut milk. Mm. You add some nice meats, whether it's oxtail or whether it's whatever chunky meats or bone-filled meats, because we're talking about peasant food, right? So the peasants would right. normally get just the leftover scraps of bones and whatever meat is left on those bones. And you slow simmer those together. And you add some scallions, some thyme, some scotch bonnet pepper, mm. let it simmer and become sweet, savory. And then you serve that over a bed of white rice with some plantains wow. on the side. That's all one needs. Stew peas and white rice. Mm. But then in the restaurant, I genuinely enjoy cooking things like oxtail. So imagine you have some white Minnesotan suburban grandmas coming to a Jamaican restaurant looking for their oxtail. <laughs> right? That's what it's about. Cultural competency through the culinary arts, if you will. That's right. right? The easiest way to expand minds, right? Exactly. Is through the palate. Exactly. So yeah. when grandmothers come in from the suburbs, they're like, what do you mean my oxtail isn't ready? I'm like, well, welcome to a Jamaican restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I truly enjoy cooking and I, and I encourage folks to just have fun with food. Have fun yeah. with cooking. One of the biggest secrets to cooking is, is enjoying what you're doing, right? Tommy, you have this great nonprofit and philanthropic background and this background as a chef and organizer. You and your whole community just have so much wisdom that all of us can learn from. How do we scale your knowledge and brilliance? We're starting here in the Twin Cities, and I hope we can really, truly have made a difference to where we can then replicate that. Because my my dream is if we can solve it here in the heart of America, right? Mm -hmm. In the Midwest. Right. right? If we can right. solve it here, then I think solving it in the Seattle or in uh, New York or in San Francisco, we can truly solve a lot of these problems. You know, who would ever thought that the Twin Cities would have been the heart of the revolution? The only person was Prince from Prince and the Revolution who said it. He himself said it. The Twin Cities was going to be the heart of the revolution. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. Prince. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tommy Beavis, you are such an inspiration. I am so honored that you have spent time with us to share a little bit of your wisdom and learnings from what you've been doing, what you're up to in the community. Thank you so much again for being here on The Ethical Rainmaker. 
Absolutely, Michelle. And I can safely say that the first time I saw you speak, I'm like, yo, we need to be working together. So I'm just honored that you yes. had me on here and keep doing what you're doing, man, with these ethical rainmakers out here. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. I look forward to more with you. All right. Big up. One Cheers. love. Hey, thanks for listening to The Ethical Rainmaker. If you're inspired by what you hear, we'd love your support. Follow us on socials. Share us with your community. It's good stuff. Don't let your people miss out. And let us know about your burning questions, what they are. DM us anywhere. Of course, please consider joining us on Patreon, where we now have a community of individual supporters. Or consider connecting with us to sponsor the show. Write us to learn more at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced in Seattle by Jeff Empman and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner with socials by Stacey Wynn Creative and production assistance by Coco Decker. This episode is supported by our more than 50 Patreon supporters, also by communitycentricfundraising.org and by Freedom Conspiracy, my fundraising consulting collective. You can find extensive show notes and transcripts at theethicalrainmaker.com. Our awesome theme song is I'm Gold by Trick Candles, which you can find on Bandcamp. Welcome to the new year. You're gonna love what's next.